If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Haggai. That is in the Bible. Here's the easiest way to find it, alright? Go to Matthew and go back three books. It's at the end of the Old Testament. It's hard to find for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's probably pretty clean pages in most of your Bibles, which means it hadn't been read a whole lot, okay? And so it's, it's hard to find because you're not familiar with where it is. It's also hard to find, secondly, because it's very short. It's the second shortest book in the entire Old Testament. Only the book of Obadiah uh, is shorter than it. But it is the story of a, a guy who comes on the scene, gives four quick sermons, if you will, prophecies. They're short. And then he's off the scene. We don't hear anything else about him in Scripture. He's only mentioned two other times. And they're both in a book that's describing what we're about to read about. And so it is a book just saying he came and he prophesied. He and Zechariah were prophesying together. And what we're going to talk about over the next three weeks, we're going to actually um, spend three weeks in the book of Haggai, two chapters, is we're going to talk about this concept that he had of how to restore the glory of God and the presence of God to God's people. Now, I've named this series Reversing Ichabod. Now, let me ask you a question. What do most people think of when you say the word Ichabod? Ichabod Crane, right? What's, what story is that from? The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And what's the other character in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow? There's a headless horseman, all right? Uh, some of y'all may have actually read the story recently and have better understanding. But there's a headless horseman, Ichabod Crane, reversing Ichabod. So I put up yesterday on Facebook that we're going to start this series called Reversing Ichabod. In fact, yeah, here's my status from yesterday. Tomorrow at First Baptist Gillisville, we start Reversing Ichabod. Any guesses as to what we're talking about? And our very own Andrew York chimed in with Sleepy Hollow. This ought to be good. All right. That's uh, Andrew and his lovely fiance in the profile picture there. All right, then somebody else weighed in, and this is a girl that went to Dyersburg High School with me. Uh, she's actually younger than me, so she didn't go to the high school at the same time, but we're from Dyersburg. Ashley McCallan Bell, and she wrote, Ichabod Crane, exclamation point, exclamation point. She must really like Ichabod Crane. I guess I'll have to listen to the podcast. And then um, one of our own, Scott, I don't know if the Harris's, are the Harris's here? I don't see them. Uh, Scott Harris wrote, will we be putting our heads back on? All right. And so there's that obvious illusion. That's what people think about with Ichabod. But then we had some people that realized that Ichabod Crane is not the first mention of that word in history. And that the word Ichabod actually comes from the Bible. Now, Kathy Yates, who's in our first service, gets close to it. She doesn't hit exactly on it, but she says, doesn't Ichabod come from the name Eli in the Bible? All right. So she's close. And then one of my friends from Union who went on to be a missionary overseas and she and her husband are back in the States serving at a church now, said, hopefully you're not talking about the character Ichabod Crane. Ichabod has a scarier implication for the modern day church. So let me ask, does anybody know where the name Ichabod shows up in Scripture? Good, we're about to read it, all right? So in 1 Samuel, uh, you don't have to turn there, it's going to be up on the screen. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, here's what happens. Before we read the scripture, let me give you a little background. The Israelites were coming together. This was the end of the judges period, right before they had kings. And uh, the Lord has just said that Samuel's going to be your next leader. But at the moment, the guy that's kind of leading the people is a guy named Eli, the priest. And he's old, like uh, the Bible calls him old. He's in his late 90s. That's old, right? And so he's 
older, and the Bible uses the words, he was very large. Okay? And so he wasn't going out to battle anymore, but his sons were. And one of his sons, Phineas, leads out this group to go take on the Philistines, and they take their secret weapon with them. The thing that they always have, and when they have this, they cannot lose. They carry it on poles, they have it in the middle. What are they, anybody know what that is? The Ark of the Covenant, right? Y'all seen Indiana Jones, right? Right, the lost ark. So they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant with them. They get there, they have this big battle, and guess what happens? They lose. Phineas is killed, and the Ark is taken by the Philistines. Now, we have no idea the devastation that would come for the Ark being taken. It was their symbol of the presence of God, and it was captured. So they run back, the messenger runs back to Eli, and it says Eli is sitting at the city gate, and they say to Eli, listen, this is what's happening. He says, what's the news? And they say, well, your son was killed, and they took the Ark of the Covenant. And when it says in Scripture, when he heard they had taken the Ark of the Covenant, he fell over out of his chair, and because he was so old and so large, his neck broke, and he died. So this is not really a good day here, right? I mean, we've lost the battle, we've had one of our commanders killed, we've lost the Ark of the Covenant, and now the guy that's leading the country is dead. So they come to Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant at this time and about to give birth. Not the best day to give birth, all right? When she heard the news about the capture of God's Ark and the death of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the woman taking care of her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. She doesn't really respond to that. It goes on to say this in 1 Samuel 4. She did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Referring to the capture of the ark of God, to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, the glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. The name Ichabod literally means no glory. And the point she's making is this. We have come to a place in the life of our nation when God has removed himself from us and it is evidenced by the fact that the ark has been removed. Now what we have to understand is in the Old Testament, they had an understanding that their God was the God and he was God over all. But we also have this understanding in the Old Testament that God shows up in particular places at particular moments. And so for them, the Ark of the Covenant, losing it, was the same as losing God's presence completely. Now that moves, right? That shifts. When we look in the Old Testament, you see places like Exodus where they're getting out of uh, Pharaoh's control in Egypt and they're going out into the wilderness. God shows himself differently there. He shows himself as a... um, Fire by night and a cloud by day, right? And so his presence is that. Then we move to this Ark of the Covenant. Well, then his Ark is encased in the tabernacle, and that's a symbol of God's presence. Then the Ark is placed, after it's recaptured, in the temple. And so the temple becomes that place that symbolizes God's presence. Fast forward about 500 years from this incident. The nation of Israel in that time splits. The northern kingdom is conquered. The southern kingdom is conquered. 
They're taken off to Babylon. They start to filter back in. They get back into the place. And one of the most atrocious things for the Israelites that the people of Babylon did is they completely destroyed the temple. Ezekiel the prophet had said that basically God's presence would not return to the people of Israel until God's temple had been rebuilt. So they come back. They have this great moment, celebration, we're back. They kind of trickle back, they get together, they decide we've got to rebuild this temple. So they get together, they lay the foundation, they work hard at it, and then after the foundation is laid, they stop. The work got too heavy. It got too much. They didn't think they could afford it anymore. The people around them were threatening them. They were calling them and saying, listen, you can't do any, You can't do this. You, we're not going to allow you to do this. They were having a hard time getting things, materials, and they just decided to quit. And so for 15 years, the foundation of the temple was laid and nothing was being done. And into that scene walks a man named Haggai. Haggai walks in and he sees what's happening and he realizes it's time to have a discussion about the temple. Haggai chapter 1. One of the things I love about this is it gives us an exact date. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. Now I know that doesn't sound very much like a specific date to you, but scholars and historians put all that together. Just so you know, this happened on August 29th, 520 B.C. So, a long time ago, right? 2,500 years ago. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet to two leaders. One is the political leader, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. And the other is the religious leader, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Verse 2. The Lord of hosts says this. These people. We're going to stop there for a second. How does God usually refer to the Israelites? My people. Right? My people. It's not coincidence that he uses the words, these people. His disgust with the Israelites was at the point that he was speaking in terms of distance. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Any of you ever had one of your own excuses repeated back to you and then you realize how lame the excuse is when somebody else says it? Anybody ever had that happen to him? Huh? This really happens with spouses. Right? Your, your wife says, hey, Lyle, we, we need to do this. I, right now we need... And you give, and she goes, so what you're saying... I know that sounds ridiculous now. Imagine one of your own bad excuses being repeated back to you by God. These people are there and they've lived there for 15 years and God says, these people say the time isn't right. Then he says this, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Well, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? And here's the point of what he's saying there. You've taken care of your own houses. Why have you taken care of mine? Now, if you've heard a sermon on Haggai, my guess is you've probably heard a sermon on Haggai in the midst of a capital fund campaign. How can you let your houses be so nice and the house of the Lord needs to be repaired? That's not 
fully what's intended here. You see, what he's really asking them about is their priorities. He says, you came back and you've lived comfortable, normal lives. You've built your own houses. Paneling would have meant that it was very nice. Now, he could have been speaking just to the two leaders and said, why do you have paneled nice houses as leaders of these people and the house of the Lord is still just at the foundation stage? Or he could have been speaking to the whole group who had made sure their houses... I mean, you live in a house for 15 years, you generally do some things to spruce it up, to make it better, to make it nicer. And he says, listen... How can you say that it's not time to take care of this when you've been taking care of your own stuff? It's a matter of priorities. And what he says is, I love how he says this through the prophet. The Holy Christian Standard, verse 5 says, Now the Lord of hosts says this to him, Think carefully about your ways. Now here's what I want us to do. This is the thought that comes from the NIV. Give careful to your ways. The, the actual Hebrew phrase there is, is place your heart about your ways. Think deeply about it. Think passionately about it. Examine yourself and see what's going on. And then he gives some example. He says to them, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner gets his money and he puts it into a bag and the bag has a hole in it. So it's just like it goes in and out. He gives the picture here of a place that is dry and desolate, that is, is bringing in a harvest that's just barely enough. It's the kind of thing that when you're dry and thirsty, it's a sip of water that momentarily quenches the thirst, but there's not enough there to satisfy. It's that when your hunger pains are rolling, it's just enough food that it settles the pain, but it's not enough to make you full. He says you've been living for 15 years that way. Dry, parched. You ever seen a dry, parched piece of land? Like my front yard today? Anybody ever seen? I mean, it, it just... The, my yard in the last week, I mean, we, we don't have good grass anyways, but whatever good grass we have is no longer. The weeds are okay, but the grass is not doing well. It, it's just, you know, crunchy, right? You walk out, it's crunchy, but it just looks like it is starving for some water. God basically looks at these people and says, why do you think it has been so hard and you are so dry? For the last week, we've kind of um, been rain seekers. Every afternoon, it seemed like thunderstorms would begin popping up and we'd get the radar on our phones or on our computer. And I'll just tell you this, I don't know about where you live, but where we live, it looked like it was forming a circle around our house. As in everywhere else was getting rain, except for that little pin that showed our house. There would be moments when we would watch the radar, and the green and the red would come over it, and we wouldn't see a single drop. Anybody else have that? Just looking for rain. Well, it was a Thursday night, or Friday night, one of those nights, the rain finally kind of started coming. We were sitting in the living room. For the last week, it's just been Susan and myself and Maddie. The boys are with grandparents. And so it's been very quiet and calm in our house. And we started to hear the, what it sounds like in our house when it starts to rain. And I walked outside and said, yep, it's raining. Susan said, good. 
And then about a minute and a half later, she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm standing in the rain. Just out there letting it rain because we needed it so badly. God looks at these people and says, you have been thirsting and longing for my presence and you don't even realize it. You've become so accustomed to taking care of everything else that you're missing out on the very thing for which you were created. And he says, give careful thought to what you're doing. Verse 7, he uses that phrase again. Think carefully about what you're doing. And then he says, go up in the hills, bring down the lumber, build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, said the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. He says, you came back to this land and you thought it was going to be great and it hasn't lived up to what you thought. When you brought it to your house, I ruined it. The Lord says, the reason it hadn't been good is because of me. Because my house still lies in ruin while each of you busy yourself with your own stuff. You have become so consumed with what you're doing in your own life that you have missed out on the very reason you were created. He says, because of that, on your account, the skies have withheld the dew, the land its crops. I've summoned a drought on the fields and hills, on the grain, on the new wine, on the olive oil, and whatever the ground yields, and on the people and the animals, and on all that your hands produce. He says, listen, it's because of your disobedience and your lack of focus on me and the priority of me in your life that I have brought these things. Let me just say to you, as believers who live in a culture where we can easily live and act like we're following the Lord and never really give priority to Him in our lives, we must sometimes ask the question in our own lives, when we are dry spiritually, when we are hurting spiritually, is this a season when the Lord has stepped away because of what I have done in my own life? As a nation, as believers, we are very good about finding the reason in everybody else that things are going wrong in this nation. In fact, we could take a poll right now and we could come up with some really good reasons that America is starting to go down the tubes. Because as Christians, we can do that. But what we have to examine in our own lives is, are we the reason? Not just for the nation, but for us. Basically, through the prophet Haggai, God is saying, if when you think carefully about your ways, you realize that I am not the priority of your life, then you're missing it. And just in case we think this is an Old Testament concept that doesn't have any validity for us today, it was Jesus Himself who, when giving His teaching on what the Christian life should really be about, following Him should really be about, uses a phrase that we have used so much that we have cheapened it and we don't understand the ramifications of it. It's a simple three-word phrase that says, Seek ye first. The first and most important thing that we should be about is seeking the Lord. The priority of our lives needs to be the glory and the honor and the celebration of the name of Jesus Christ and God our Father. And everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. Listen, I love my wife. We've been married now for almost 14 years. 
And she is my best friend. We have been through all kinds of stuff together. Good times, difficult times, and I absolutely love Susan. But my relationship with Susan is a distant second to the priority of my relationship with the Lord. I love my kids. All 3.99 of them. And tomorrow morning, we are going to the hospital and they're going to induce labor. So we're going to have little Ava tomorrow. And I'm going to absolutely love on Ava and I love Maddie and I love Luke and I love Eli. But my priority to them is secondary to my relationship to the Lord. I love this church. I love being your pastor and I love the relationships I have with you. But it is distant in comparison to the priority of my relationship with the Lord. At least that's how we're intended to live. If you're in a place in your life where it's dry and dusty spiritually, when it seems like you've been butting your head against the wall consistently for weeks and months and years, have you considered carefully your ways? One of my favorite writers has said this. The purpose of God in sending His Son to die and rise and live and be at the right hand of God was that He might restore to us the missing jewel, the jewel of worship, that we might come back and learn to do again that which we were created to do in the first place, to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, to spend our time in awesome wonder and adoration of God, feeling and expressing it and letting it get into our labors and doing nothing except as an act of worship to the Almighty God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That the reason that Jesus came wasn't just to save us, although that's a big part, but it was to restore the ability we have to do the very thing for which we were created, which is to give glory and honor and praise unto God. The ultimate goal of us should be to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Look at the people's response. And then we're going to finish. Verse 12. Zerubbabel, the high priest, and I love this, the entire remnant of the people. You know what the word entire means, right? It means every. It means all. It means there wasn't an 80% vote or a 50% vote or a 99% vote. It was a 100% vote. We're getting on board. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and for the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared, worshipped, reverenced, celebrated the Lord. Verse 13, I love this. As soon as that kind of happens, they haven't even built the temple fully yet. They've just started to obey. But God is so ready to bring His presence and the reality of who He is into these people's lives. Verse 13 says, The Lord's message delivered the Lord's new message to the people. And it is simply this, I am am with you. Ichabod meant that the glory of the Lord had departed. And when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, every Israelite would have said, the glory of the Lord has departed. Ichabod. In one sentence, when the people began to obey, he didn't make them, he didn't give them a testing period. He didn't say, show me that you mean it for six months. Immediately, when the people obeyed and began the work, it says, God said, Ichabod is reversed. And my presence is with you. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant. 
And they began to work on the house of Yahweh on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. I love how their spirits are encouraged by doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, Eugene Peterson tells the story of being in Montana and seeing this bird's nest and watching it develop. He has a retreat up there and watching it develop as the birds would, uh, the, the parents would go and get the food every day and take it and see the little mouths up there feeding. And watching one day when he noticed that the birds were standing in the nest and suddenly the first bird got pushed out of the nest. And he says he remembers watching it as the mama bird or parent bird or whichever bird, which, you know, whichever adult bird was started to push it down the branch. And it got to the end of the branch and the parent knocks it off. And the little bird, on its way down, the four feet to the water, suddenly discovers his wings and flies away. Second little bird gets out, goes to the end of the branch, parent knocks it off. Little bird discovers its wings, fly away. Third little bird was the problem child. Gets on the branch, is reluctantly pushed down to the end of the branch, and as the parent goes to push it the last time, it stumbles a little bit, and with its talons, it grabs onto the top of the branch and is hanging on the branch. Well, the parent, knowing what needs to happen, begins to peck at the feet of the bird. That is a cruel parent. Right? Starts to peck at the feet of the bird. And eventually, the pain of the pecking is too much for the bird. And he lets go. And as he plummets that four feet, he too finds his wings and begins to fly. Eugene Peterson writes, Birds have legs, but they weren't meant to walk. They were meant to fly. And that bird would have been perfectly happy just settling for walking on that branch when the reason he was created was to fly. He then says, as people who live on this earth, we have lots of things that we are able to do, but the reason we are created is to give glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ and God the Father. And if we are doing anything else, we are missing out on the very reason for our existence. So let me ask you. If you consider carefully your ways, what does it reveal about your priority? 